0: Week on P.A. Books, George Thomas, author of Frank Furness, Architecture in the Age of the
1: Great Machines. George Thomas, author of Frank Furness, Architecture in the Age of the Great Machines. Why'd you write
0: the book? Well, it's a long story. Uh, and it takes me back 46 years when Evan Turner, who was the director of the art museum, here in Philadelphia, asked me to do the research for the catalog that was going to be accompanying an exhibit on furnace. It was the first major look at furnace in Philadelphia. And uh, I was asked to try to figure out what we could learn about furnace and put it together for the research uh, and then to create a catalog of furnace's work. And when furnace, when we began this project, Furness was known for about 40 pretty incredible buildings, and everybody assumed that he was just some sort of wild uh, maniac. And I began, uh, I was a graduate student in art history at Penn at that point, and I was using the new computerized databases and systems that got me into different sources, and I'm discovering that there are all sorts of resources that no one's ever looked at. And I took Furness from 40 buildings to 550 buildings. And in the process, I transformed his reputation. Uh, That instead of being this wild man, Furness clearly was serving an important need that Philadelphia businessmen approved of enough to hire him. Because my theory is that that architects aren't hired by clients to make the client look bad. And Furness was obviously getting the major plum jobs, the major institutions, the major banks, the major houses. He, he means something, and he's hired by all these people. We now have him up to 750 buildings. So uh, by my rough calculation, he's doing a building every other week for 40 years, which is pretty incredible. Uh, and uh, what I was trying to get at here and what I've I think I've finally figured out is why Frank Furness was able to do what Frank Furness did. Uh, and uh, in that sense, uh, I, I am in really redefining the history of the modern movement in architecture, uh, because I'm putting Furness at the very beginning. He's the foundation stone out of which modern architecture comes. Uh, and <clears throat> equally critically, I'm providing a theoretical frame to understand what he was doing, what he was about. <clears throat> uh, and the the frame uh, is the world of the men that hired him, who are industrial designers, machine tool makers, locomotive builders, uh, engineers, the people who are engaged in the modern world, who don't look to precedent and history as the model, and who free furnace to use the new tools and the materials of the industrial age uh, and uh, what was amazing was once I changed my slant from looking at furnace as aesthetics and architecture to instead aesthetics and machine design I found an entire literature that began to explain Frank Furness uh, that Furnace uh and his clients are part of a cluster working here in Philly redesigning the nature of the machine. The machine in, in America uh, in the 1850s is usually painted red or green with gold detail and has classical columns and it. They look like little buildings and they're very cute. But the Philadelphia guys basically say, no, that's all extraneous. It gets in the way. Uh, it catches on things. It makes the machines more dangerous. We're going to make machines that are simply what they are. We're going to get rid of all that stuff, and we're going to paint them gray to look like metal so that they don't catch your eye and you just see them and you're, you're aware of them, but you're not focusing on secondary stuff. And the machine becomes, in a sense, a tool to make things uh, and at the same time expresses what uh, what it's about. So how did
1: the, the design of the machines translate into Frank Furness's buildings?
0: His buildings work from the same principles. Uh, and that's what, what really got me looking again. Uh, I had just uh, done the restoration of the library at Penn uh, that Furness did in the 1886 to 91, and we had re uh, restored it uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, and I was still sort of working through with the Robert Venturi office Uh, a lot of the issues of that design. And I began to realize that this was a building that was designed perfectly to solve the problems of a library. It didn't look to classical temples. It wasn't trying to be a French library, a gigantic uh, limestone clad uh, behemoth. It's actually looking at Philadelphia factories. And I, I did an article about this in 2000 for the historical society of Pennsylvania where we were looking at the state of Pennsylvania as a work of art uh, and furnace was our architectural example and i i realized that the library has a gigantic tower at front uh, and it's a tower that serves all of the vertical transportation all of the people going up to the third floor lecture hall all the people going to the second floor library as well as all the people coming into the library itself and i i was looking around, and I thought to myself, this is what a factory owner does. He puts everything in one place, the toilets, the vertical stacks, everything is all in this one thing. And then he clears his factory floor so that the the floor is able to be laid out exactly as you need it for your machines, or in the case of the library, the library tables and the workspaces and so on. And I began to realize that, in fact, this was what Furness was doing with his really great buildings is he's he's looking at the problem he starts with logistics how do people and things move in and out of the building he lays out a plan that responds to that the Academy of Fine Arts here in Philadelphia is a great example the public on the Broad Street entrance the art students who are always art students as far away as possible from the paying public in the back corner Uh, And then in the real center of the back, a gigantic freight elevator that lets you lift those gigantic works of art up to the second floor gallery, but also let you lift a horse for the the academy students drawing up to the studio level because horses don't do steps. So, you know, I I begin thinking about, okay, this is what Furness is doing. And if you really analyze his buildings and you start with the question of the plan and then you move through the layout and then you move to the way that it is articulated as, as form and detail, you suddenly realize this is a very different thing. He's not looking at what everybody else does. He's looking at what the problem tells him he needs to do. And that's a big idea. Well, what if you put.
1: Pre-Frank Furnace buildings next to his buildings, how can you tell the difference? What, what changed?
0: Well, uh, the, the obvious thing is that Furness uses the materials of the industrial age directly, freely expressed, not hidden. So if he's going to use a gigantic steel beam to span an auditorium in the Academy of Fine Arts, he doesn't cover it with plaster and egg and dart moldings and make it go away He leaves it there. It's there for you to see. Uh, In the galleries uh, of the academy, there are steel beams spanning the gallery spaces to carry the roof structure. They're carried on cast iron columns. They're absolutely visually present. Uh, The big reading room at the library at Penn is just gigantic steel girders that span the room and just totally open expressed, "This this is the world you live in. Uh, more fun at the library is that when you come in the front door there's a great stair and everybody gets all caught up in the detail but if you look at the stair analytically you realize the furnace has given you a lesson about the nature of steel and iron so that the newel posts are cast and richly detailed because you can put all that detail into a cast element but you can't use cast iron to span anything because it's brittle so you can use it in vertical support And then he spans from it with big steel, rolled steel I-beams, which is the new structural element. And then he does the railings and all this lacy wrought iron. So he's showing you wrought iron, rolled steel, and cast iron, the, the materials of the age that we live in, and makes them central to the experience of the building. And he does this over and over again. He does it in houses. Uh, where steel girders span, you know, vestibules. I mean, it's just uh, every time you look around, you're saying, oh, yeah, look at that. Uh, So that's piece one. And piece two and more complicated is that the plan of the building tells you how the thing is designed to work. It's not looking at somebody else's plan. It's solving this client, this problem. And when you begin to see that, all of those things come together and then Furnace gives it the facade that everybody says, oh yeah, that's a Frank Furnace. But it's these other base elements, these internal logical pieces that make the thing. That's where he begins and what tells you that there's a different idea at work here.
1: How far- deep down into the building did he reach to get his design elements? I mean, if you were in a bathroom there, would you recognize the way the bathroom was laid out? Or yeah, the you always?
0: could. You could. Um, and that would be something that uh, would be, I think, a big part of uh, the world that uh, we're a part of. Uh, but uh, he, his little brackets, his little uh, details are all part of what he is very comfortable with. Was this kind of thing going on
1: in other cities at the time where the Industrial Revolution was reaching into architecture?
0: It was reaching in, but they cover it, they conceal it, they hide it. Uh, and th- Philadelphia is interesting because it's a Philadelphia is a city and a culture that's run by engineers. Uh, the, the central cultural organization of Philadelphia uh, is the Franklin Institute. And the Franklin Institute uh, was set up as an organization in which Scientists, academics, and people working in the factory could all be members and could discuss ideas from the full array of experiences from theory to practice. And its its members become the board members of the Academy of Fine Arts and the University of Pennsylvania and the Academy of Music and the Philadelphia Zoo. All the organizations of this city are basically run by engineers and industrialists. And that means that when they say, basically, as several did when they commissioned churches, I want you to use iron, use my material, and treat it as such. Okay. So we see that there's a wonderful little church over at 22nd and Spruce Street that has exposed steel flying buttresses. And you, you don't think about it until you suddenly realize, oh yeah, how Philadelphia Uh, Centennial decade, 1870s, part of this effort to talk about and use the materials that, that are part of the life of the city. So that's, I think, a central component. You start with the clients and then you go into how do I tell the story that gives them an identity and uh, again, Furness does this with his imaginative ornament and his imaginative use of modern materials. But what's interesting in Philly, there's another architect who runs exactly parallel in time and space with Furness, who's Joseph Wilson, who, is the, who starts off running the architectural shop for the Pennsylvania Railroad. And they're gonna s- disseminate the Philadelphia ideas about design and construction the whole length of the railroad all the way to Chicago. So when we talk about Chicago construction and Louis Sullivan, who studied in Frank Furness's office, uh, we're really talking about Philadelphia construction and the modern ideas that Sullivan absorbed from Furness and took to Chicago. The whole, the whole modern story is backward. But Wilson's interesting because he's an engineer. Uh, his training was at RPI. He then forms a new type of office that has architects, engineers, uh, geologists, uh, hydrologists, all of the things that you needed to understand to make a successful complex modern building, big sort of corporate firm. And they're the ones who basically give steel its, its expression in the capacity to span giant spaces, uh, the Philadelphia Convention Center, the old train shed of Reading Terminal. That's a Joseph Wilson. And it, it is this wonderful lyrical expression of how little iron you need to cover more than a football field. That's his game. His game is I want to show you how these materials work. Furnace's game is I want to show you how they, you can give them expression. And so in a sense, if you think of modern architecture as, you know, Mies classicism, minimal, that's Joseph Wilson. And if you think of Le Corbusier and the cultural complexities of design, that's Frank Furness. And those two ideas come out of this city in the 1870s, 1880s and 1890s and really shape where modern architecture will go for the rest, for the next 150 years.
1: So if you had walked around Philadelphia, and would it have looked different than other cities? Totally. To New York, Chicago? Totally.
0: Uh, and, and, and it looked so different that people from those cities couldn't understand it and hated it. Deeply, deeply incensed that Furness's buildings didn't look like, you know, the, the classics, didn't look like uh, the Gothic f- history that they were all celebrating. Uh, and there, the critics are vicious, I mean, there's the the line, the Furnessic reign of architectural terror. (laughs) Uh, And you say to yourself, I guess he didn't like it. Uh, But what's, what's amazing is that when they get inside Furness's buildings, they suddenly say, oh, wow, look at the perfection of the light. Look at how lovely this interior is. Look how the galleries at the academy are perfectly top lit with no shadows. Isn't this amazing? And they don't realize that the building that Furness did on the outside was necessary to get the light in to where he wanted it on the inside in the way he wanted it. Because their model was, let's start with history. Let's start with what we know. And Furness, working for these industrialists, is free to say, ah, no, not so fast. We've got new tools, new capacity. Let's go in new directions. The, the other piece, and this is something that I always come back to, is that Furness's father's closest friend from childhood five-year nursery through the end of his life is Ralph Waldo Emerson, the American philosopher. They're both Boston kids who go to Boston Latin and then Harvard and then are both Unitarian ministers for a bit, and they're all, they're, they're, they, they, they summer together as families. They are totally connected. And Emerson, in the 1830s, realizes that America ought to be different than England and the old European cultures. Uh, This this idea of old Europe isn't new. Uh, and, uh, And Emerson is saying, turn your back on the past, forget Europe, make your art out of the locomotives and the steam engines and the machinery and the nature that is part of the world you live in That's where the American democracy ought to make arts that everyone understands because it's part of the culture we live in, as opposed to something learned from some other place. And Furness hears those ideas all through his childhood. Uh, And his father, when he lectures to the AIA, uses similar ideas. And Frank is, you know, as a minister says, myself, I'm also a preacher's kid. And I know that I would once in a while hear a a line in a sermon of my father's and say, oh yeah, that makes sense. And Frank, I think actually would sit back once in a while and say, oh yeah, okay, I can do that. So
1: so architecture critics, you use the phrase, uh, we're seeing him as a violent destroyer of time established norms, as opposed to architecture critics saying, hey, here's something new. Here's
0: something, exactly. Because again, architecture is a cultural narrative. And it's something that we that we learn about as history. We, you know, write books about it, and we do all sorts of things that are designed to put it into a, a frame of understanding. Uh, and the usual way we get at it is, what are the prototypes? What are the sources? And Furness isn't looking at that. Furness is ignoring that. Furness is initially sort of juxtaposing lots of stuff from other things onto buildings, and then as he gets sort of figures out what he's doing. He is able to start from the plan, express the plan, make the building be what it is. And they don't get it at all. But because his clients do get it. How are his clients ahead of the architecture? Critics? Because they're engineers. They don't care. They've never read a, a, a article about architecture. This isn't who they are. They are looking at how they make machines. The frustrating thing with this book, we had a big battle over the title. There's an, ar- an architectural historian from Los Angeles who originally came over from Great Britain named Rainer Banham, and he wrote a major book that we all read, on Theory of Architecture and Design in the First Machine Age. He's talking about the 1920s, and I wanted to call this Frank Furness Architecture in the First Machine Age, meaning the 1870s. And I couldn't do that because I just felt it would be too unfair to ban them and people would, wouldn't understand what I was talking about. But that's really the point, is that Furnace is working in a, in a city that has a different visual culture. The, the problem for Philly was that we didn't have the media that told the story. So the first American major architectural publications come out of Boston – old history, Harvard, the boys, you know, giving you the sort of standard cultural narrative. Furness makes it into the 1876, the first year of the American architect and is never published again. Uh, Then architectural volumes, publications move to New York and New York is much more looking at fashion and Paris and French design. But they're not interested in the new particularly, that's not their thing. And so, in a sense, he doesn't have a cultural voice that can defend him. And the people that come down from other cities and look at his work just can't understand it. What's interesting, however, is that the folks in Chicago got it and they continued to publish him because Chicago is also a new culture. Chicago is run by people who are interested in logistics. Uh, The big catalog companies that are building the gigantic warehouses that they're going to distribute, you know, Montgomery Ward stuff and Sears Roebuck and all. They're all out there. They have a different worldview. uh, And that's one that's pretty close to the Philadelphia worldview. So Furnace is understandable from Philly to Pittsburgh to Cleveland to Chicago. Chicago. And he works basically along the Pennsylvania Railroad all the way out there. And his pupils do the same, and there's a real vocabulary. Everybody gets it. Uh, the Inland Architect, which is the Chicago magazine, publishes Furness on a regular basis because he's part of the world. But to me, what's, what's important about Furness is not only what he achieves, but what he also, the people he educates, the people he trains. Because in, in every way, What we think of as modern architecture in America comes out of his office. Uh, That Furness teaches in Philadelphia, Will Price who does the great Atlantic City reinforced concrete hotels, the train and on the Marlboro Blenheim, and then railroad stations all the way to Chicago, uh, and has a satellite office in Indianapolis, which is an industrial center, the industrial culture, and Will Price and Frank Furness are all together, and you mentioned Louis Sullivan, and then Sullivan is in his office, and Sullivan, of course, has that kid Frank Lloyd Wright in his office, uh, and you know when when Wright is designing Rodef Shalom Synagogue, or sorry Beth Shalom Synagogue, up uh, in Elkins Park, uh, he comes to Philadelphia and tells stories about what he remembers about Frank Furness, who had visited the Sullivan office in the eighteen nineties, and he was this. Dramatic, charismatic figure that that Wright remembered, you know, just like it was the day before. Uh, and if you look at Beth Shalom and you look at the spiky roof and the expression of the new materials and all that stuff, he's it's a Frank Furness grandchild, and he he looked at the library at Penn, which Penn was about to tear down, and says it's the work of an artist. Uh, and at that point, the dean at at Penn says, "Ooh." <laughs> can't tear that down.
1: Well, you mentioned there's something like 750 of his buildings that you've yep. discovered. How many of them are still
0: standing? Probably 250 or 300. You know, so actually a lot. Uh, what, what's interesting, is in a way, he's like uh, Antonio Gaudi in Barcelona, that if when you look at Barcelona, you go to see Gaudi, and you say, wow, this is great stuff. Uh, Furnaces buildings tell the same type of story Philadelphia, 20 years earlier, uh, and covering the beginnings of the the Victorian world that Gaudi comes out of. uh, My my guess is that a number of the Spanish architects actually came to the Centennial, saw what Furness was doing, took it back to Spain as part of what they're doing in the 1880s and 90s. But uh, even with the losses, and we've lost, and the National Park Service took out, you know six or seven major furnace banks downtown, and obviously we have demolished Broad Street Station and the arcade building that connected to it by a bridge across market, and all of those things are gone. But nonetheless, if you lay out just the sequence of furnace projects that exist in his most spectacular mode, there's enough that you could see the city and say, wow, this is a place of innovation and creativity. What would he have been like to be around? He was loved by men. Uh, he was a guy's guy. He he had been. Um, he was a, he was the cut up in his in his studies in New York. Uh, he went into the cavalry during the Civil War uh, and uh, became a military hero. Won the Medal of Honor uh, for. He was at
1: Gettysburg. No,
0: he was, he was at Gettysburg and he designed their monument for his troop there. But after Gettysburg uh, at uh, the, not Beverly Crossing, there's another one down there, but one of the big battles in the Virginia campaign, he carried a box of ammunition on his head across an open battlefield to an outpost uh, that needed to be resupplied and then came back across the the field and uh, was awarded the Medal of Honor for that uh, heroic act. Uh, he, He swore a blue streak Uh, his language was, uh, was colorful in every dimension, uh, and his architecture buddies describe him as, you know, the hail fellow well met, the really fun person to be around. He hunted, he fished, uh, his, one of his big early projects was a house for Teddy Roosevelt's father in New York, and Frank, uh, then later hunted and fished with Teddy in the West, uh, they formed the Boone and Crockett Club uh, to give Teddy a national platform uh, conservation and and hunting and Frank was one of the first members of that organization uh, you know so in that sense he's he's a guy's guy. Uh, I suspect in the twenty first century there would be uh, some distress over probably the way he he acted, but he he was colorful in every way. How was he as a businessman? Uh, a little loose, I think is the word. You know, he, he, jobs came in, he spent the money. And um, there are stories about the office, you know, struggling to get by, borrowing from the banks and from his family. Uh, and all of those, I think, are part of whenever there was a downturn, you know, whenever there's an economic downturn in America, architecture gets really sick. Uh, and Furness lived through several of those downturns. Uh, and his his tendency was to always assume there was a new job tomorrow. And he didn't do what those of us who have run businesses learn to do, which is to say, wow, things are getting tight. I've got to lay people off now. Furness didn't do that. Uh, and uh, that would stretch him to the point that he needed needed help. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, he ran a successful practice that spanned from Georgia to Minnesota to Maine. Uh, and uh, his clients hired him over and over and over again. So in that sense, he was someone that they all liked working with. Now, his company was Furnace and Hewitt. Well, it started as, as Furnace, as Fraser, his teacher, Furnace and Hewitt. And then uh, Furnace and Hewitt ditched Fraser while the academy job came up, and Fraser was in Washington looking for work, and they entered the academy project without him. Not a nice thing. And then Furnace and Hewitt split while the academy job was going on because Furness was clearly going in directions that Hewitt was not comfortable with. And then Frank ran it as his own business, just Frank Furness, until he hooked up with one of his draftsmen who was really well-connected in the main line, Alan Evans, so he became Furness and Evans. And then uh, in the 1880s, they added and company, and that became the firm that continued all the way into the 1930s. Uh, But... uh, it's, it's always Furnace's instrument. Uh, he's the, the lead designer. He's the lead thinker. Uh, when there's something new, he's on it. When there's something sort of standard, a kid in the office will get to do it. But it's, he's really the, the man. Now, the difference
1: between architecture and other arts is that if you want to do an oil painting, that's one thing. Right. But To be an architect, you have to persuade somebody to let you build a building for them. And they have to put real money into it. So how do you get started? How did he get somebody to trust him to do the first building in this new style?
0: He got people to trust him because he was connected. Uh, His father as the Unitarian minister with connections within his own congregation. When the Unitarians in Germantown wanted a little church... Frank was the logical guy to do the little church. Uh, And uh, his brother marries the sister of a major Philadelphia industrialist. And when he wants a new house on Rittenhouse Square, Frank does it. So the early projects are often about people he knew. But once he got rolling, he people came to him because he gave them something that stood out. The, the the amazing group were his banks on Chestnut Street. Banks in 1870 were all the same. They offered the same services. They were individual banks. You couldn't say, oh, it's more convenient for me to, to bank out here on the main line while, with a bank downtown. There was one bank downtown and a different bank on the main line. So. Every bank, in a sense, has to get your attention. And Furness's banks got your attention. They, they, they screamed on the street. They beat their chests. They elbowed the neighboring buildings out of the way. They made you see them. And they became tremendous advertising that led people into the building. Uh, and the, the line of banks, every bank from 1871 on becomes more expressive, more flamboyant, more in your face, and people wanted that. That's what they're saying is, hey, I, I want my building to stand out. How, how am I going to get you in the door? Furnace got you in the door. And then he shifts into being, into understanding the new technologies, the new possibilities of the age, uh, and he begins to get into uh, questions of heating and ventilation and can I move heated air uh, in a way that will pull cool air up from a basement when I don't have regular air conditioning? And the answer was, yes, I could. He could. The academy with its glass roof creates a superheated volume of air up there. You ventilate it. It pulls air up from the basement into the galleries. Uh, He'd been doing the same at hospitals. So that the Jefferson Hospital building has the same type of ventilating opportunities. And furnace, uh, becomes supremely good at figuring out how to make the building really meet your needs. And I think that's, that be, that's a huge part. This is not just flamboyance. This is also a building that uses the systems of the contemporary world to best effect. Uh, and uh, he does big ventilators on the tops of buildings. And even if they, are, they don't look like what you'd expect, on the top of a library or on the top of a veterinary hospital because he wants you to be comfortable. He puts big skylights right over where you're working uh, because in the pre-electric light era uh, and the pencil on a big ledger, uh, you had to be able to see what you were doing. And so Furness gave you beautiful light uh, to work in. He, he, He really thinks about what's gonna go on, and he makes the building serve that. I
1: want to ask you about one sentence you have in here. Whimsical touches continue to the end of his career, suggesting that Furness liked being the class clown so long as it brought attention to him and his clients. Yeah. How can you look at a, a building and say, oh, there's a whimsical touch?
0: Well, uh, there are uh, little pieces that, that you see. There's a, a couple of houses on Walnut Street that have a sort of a keystone that has a sandblasted ornament, and when you look at it one way, it's just a sandblasted ornament. When you look at it another way, it's actually a drooping mustache and drooping eyes, and you suddenly see a face there. Uh, there, are, there's a, a house over, a twin house over on Spruce Street, that has. Uh, Big, a big lintel, and in the center of the lintel is a little triangle that looks like a nose, and right next to it is the sort of googly-eyed little double eye that uh, we all know from, what was it, Kildare was here? Remember that? that oh, Kilroy. Kilroy, oh, yeah. Kilroy was here, that little cartoon thing. Furnace turns that into something that is on lots and lots of buildings. Uh, and This is the, the house for children of one of his clients, and he just he just sort of threw a little goof in there. And I I think he he just loved the fun of it, loved putting these little bits in uh, to make you look, to make you pay attention. Uh, And he he did this from the beginning uh, when he was in Richard Morris Hunt's Atelier in New York in the 1850s. There are wonderful stories of him caricaturing everybody in the class and They're all giggling and chuckling, and then suddenly they stop, and Furness keeps on drawing oblivious to the fact that Hunt has come into the room. And Hunt is basically sort of looking aghast and then sees the humor and then has Furness caricature him. Uh, And this is actually a family art. Uh, His father, William Henry Furness, the Unitarian minister, was a known and noted caricaturist. And then Frank continued it both in his buildings and also uh, in very unflattering drawings. There's a wonderful book of his drawings that instead of saying to be, to be destroyed on my death, it says to be opened on my death, <laughs> which, you know, you're thinking, okay, this is who he is. Was he famous at the
1: time outside of the circle of people who were building buildings?
0: Um, he was he was wildly famous in the Centennial decade. People came to Philadelphia, saw the Centennial, saw he designed Vern's a system. lot of the Centennial he exposition designed buildings. Some of the buildings there, but mainly his stuff was all over the city. Uh, he did the Brazilian pavilion, uh, which was this fabulous piece of flamboyant design uh, in the Centennial Main Centennial Hall. But they were all Wilson brothers. They were all, you know, the the systems guys y- using systems to make inexpensive buildings. But by the time that was, the centennial happened, the Academy of Fine Arts was built, five or six of his big banks on Chestnut Street were built, a number of his houses were built, uh, and he's, he's the show. And when people you know, describe Philadelphia architecture in the American Architect and Building News, they say that the really important influence is this new guy, Furness. Uh, by the 80s, he's being ignored except that you see his buildings here being imitated in Kansas City and Salem, Oregon. So people are seeing his banks and saying, wow, that's that's kind of cool. I can do it. Out- no one will know that I got it in Philly when I take it out to Kansas City, but, but people will notice it. Uh, and so that piece continued. And there is a long discussion in the 80s about the Furnessic design, about the the fact that he has his own style, his own manner. In Philly, that's good because people accept it, and out of town, it's the frenetic grain of architectural terror. So it's not good. Uh, And then by the time he dies uh, in 1912, he's almost forgotten. He's described as an architect and Medal of Honor winner, Uh, and they're really much more interested in his Civil War heroics than they are in his design
1: we should talk about a couple of the buildings that that you mentioned earlier and yep. the the one that you focus on in the book a lot is the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts which is still standing yep. what's significant about that how did he get the job
0: well that was uh, it's one of those again interesting situations he was up against a group of architects all of whom had connections to the board of the academy and furness had a connection to the board as well uh, his brother-in-law was in, was in charge of the building committee but uh the real answer to the Academy job is that he and Hewitt figured out how to do what the Academy wanted. They wanted, on the first floor, North Light Studios that would give you that nice even illumination that artists liked in their, in their workshops. And upstairs, they wanted blank walls with a skylit roof to let the light in for the galleries without having art, or light in your eye as you're looking at the, at the art. And Furnace figures out how to make that possible. Is the big problem is if I have a, a wall on the street and I have a glass roof above it, how do I carry the wall above the glass roof? And the usual method would have been a big arcade of stone or brick, which would carry the upper level, but it would block all the light coming into the studio. And Furnace figures out how to do basically a big steel truss sitting on the fin walls between the studios, that carries the gallery level and doesn't interrupt the light at all. And that brilliant piece of contemporary design was the thing that really made them say, wow, this is the building for us, and they selected his design. Um, That's a, a building that is about to get a second round of restoration. I did the restoration on it back in the 70s, and they're now going to, do some of the things that we didn't have the money for in the 70s. But it is it is the building to see. If you want to see an early furnace, that's the building. And then the other really great building that, that you know, we'd restored uh, in the late 80s, early 90s with uh, Venturi Scott Brown uh, is the Library at Penn, which is the next round of his ideas uh, and tells the story uh, of how... A modern library ought to be formed, shaped, and work. Uh, and the wonderful thing was that when we did the restoration of that building, it, it turned right back into an absolutely fabulous library to work in. Uh, it, was, you know, it was as good as ever, uh, and it is the most popular place to work on the Penn campus. Uh, at exam time, you can't get a seat. So that's a pretty neat thing. And then there are houses scattered around. Rittenhouse Square has, you know, 15 or 20 of his houses. Uh, And if you walk around and and look, you'll see the Hockley house and the funny twin house with the googly eyes for the Fraser kids. And there's a wonderful house on Rittenhouse Square. And, you know, they're they're scattered all through, and you begin to say, oh, yeah, there's another one. So he did
1: private houses for individuals? He did
0: lots of private houses. Uh, He was, you know... Country houses, resort houses, uh, you know, houses in Maine, houses in Cumberland Island, and Georgia, you know, everywhere. Was he expensive? Uh, he can't have been that expensive. Uh, he, he did a level of design and detail, particularly in the '70s stuff, in which he designed the stencil patterns for the ceilings and the the paneling for the uh, for the rooms with uh... cut out details and dining rooms with lobsters and bunnies uh, in, you know, in the paneling to tell you that we're, we're here to eat things uh... and furniture uh, there's an amazing table down at the high museum in atlanta that is uh... came from the roosevelt house in new york uh... that has giant stork heads spearing frogs as the legs for the table I mean, it is a Incredible levels of effort and detail, uh, and they all hired him to do it. So.
1: Now you mentioned uh, if you want to see early furnace style, Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, so, so can you look at buildings and see how his style evolved?
0: Oh, absolutely uh, because he he does change. The early ones are you know violently colored sort of red, white, and blue flags. I mean, the academy is is red, white, and purple. Uh, with an enameled panels and ornament overhead, and it's, it is just as w- an amazing array of colors and materials that you can imagine. The library is on the outside, of, the library at Penn is just all red, everything's red. It, it was one of those funny things that when we were, we were working on the restoration. Penn had gone to what we call the single bucket theory of paint uh, that the dorms were all limestone trim, so they did limestone paint for the windows. And at the library, they just used the the tan limestone paint for the library. It looked wrong. Uh, The library was red sandstone, red brick, red terracotta, red tile roof, red copper. And when we did paint analysis and scraped down on the paint, we got down to red paint. (laughs) So the whole thing was basically, if you think of your Sherlock Holmes, it was a study in Scarlet. And uh, it was designed. You know, it pulled things together. That furnace is much more interested in the volumes and what they tell you than in the surface manipulation. Uh, and so that's that's a classic building from you know the late 1880s. Uh, and then uh, if you go out to Bryn Mawr to the Baldwin School, the old Bryn Mawr Hotel out there is a fabulous building from the same period in which Furnace is really looking at industrial architecture to represent the Pennsylvania Railroad, which is the client. Yeah. Did the
1: materials available to him change over time, so that the technology, so he could do things with later buildings that he couldn't do with earlier buildings, either with electricity or plumbing or or
0: Yeah, you know, all or of those things. That's part of what's going on, is that the 1870s are this period of enormous transformation. Gas lighting has come in. We're now about to go in the 1880s into electric lighting, uh, interior plumbing, steam radiation for heat. All of that stuff is happening. And it's Furnace's job to incorporate them in a way that makes the building work as they're learning how to do these new things. The one thing they didn't have was forced air air conditioning. Uh, but he even figured out how to pull air up from the basement and cool a building that way. So, yeah.
1: One of the buildings you mentioned was the Broad Street Station.
0: Yes. Can you talk about that? Well, that's a building that I guess I was in when I was about eight, uh, and I don't remember it at all. Uh, It was enormous. It was uh, the headquarters and the downtown terminal of the biggest railroad in America, and it was the railroad in America that, Set the industrial standards. It called itself the Standard Railroad of America, not meaning ordinary, but the one that that makes the things work. And uh, they had built an earlier station opposite City Hall, beginning in 1881, by Joseph Wilson, who had done a very workmanlike little Gothic building. And Furness is given the task of basically quadrupling it. Uh, of building an enormous addition that was going to handle some 24 trains simultaneously uh, coming in on the elevated rail tracks and then also house the office workforce of the railroad that is now some 10,000 miles of track going to Chicago and St. Louis and the whole eastern part of the country was served by this one railroad. So Furness's task was to make something that would look okay with what Wilson had done earlier, make something that was enormous to say we're enormous as important, and important and more brutally to contest, in a sense, with City Hall across the street, which everybody already recognized as a sinkhole of corruption uh, for the vast expense that was going into this building uh, and so that's all marble furnaces is industrial brick and terracotta, the materials of the industrial age.
1: How did the size of the Broad Street terminal compare to the size of uh, City Hall?
0: The main office block was about a third the size of City Hall, but the train shed extended for five city blocks behind it as one enormous structure with one clear span s- steel roof over the entire thing so that it, it was a roof that would have held the whole Reading Terminal roof inside it. Uh, it was just an unbelievable, vast thing that was so big uh, that they had to cut streets through and under. it. The, 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 the whole structure gets the name the Chinese Wall, the Great Wall of China that cuts Philadelphia in half because they had this big viaduct that got to the trains. The game was to get the tracks off the street. They didn't want people and cars and horses and everybody colliding. So they elevated the whole thing, which then creates the wall, which then required cut-throughs at, I think, 15th and 22nd Street. and Otherwise, you were out of luck and had to go around and get, go through those, those narrow things. But the building was, was gargantuan. Uh, and what's fun about it, is that it was also uh, in a weird way, romantically beautiful? Uh, painters of the day celebrated the views of the inside, of the great shed and the steam and the smoke of the locomotives filling the space. And you know, there are numerous views of this thing that that make it clear. Uh, that to the artist, this was the modern world. This was energy and, you know, the titanic forces of an industrial age uh, being unleashed in in service to people. And uh, it was was an astonishing building. Uh, The train shed burned in 1924, so they just had open tracks. Uh, By 1930, they were building 30th Street Station, Uh, And the expectation was that Broad Street would be demolished. Uh, They built Suburban Station to get you downtown. And then uh, the Depression came along and they didn't want to put the money into the demolition. And then World War II came along and they needed every bit of train space they could get. So they actually kept running that station into the 50s. And then they finally demolished it to create Penn Center uh, and all the new offices over there. Uh, And, you know... Back and forth, you say, well, it would have been fun to see that. But in the end, Philadelphia needed new downtown offices, and it was probably a better use of the space right in the core of the city to have the 15 or 20 office towers that are there. Uh, The one wonderful thing, there's a, you know, train people are really wonderful because they're really into their train things. And there was a guy who has been working on a seven or eight foot long model of Broad Street Station like the last 20 years. And when we did an exhibit on furnace and the railroads for uh, the library company a few years ago, we borrowed that model. And it was just amazing because you could, he'd done the waiting rooms inside. He'd done everything. And you could peek in through windows and see, you know, this station and you could almost, almost live it. It was just, just fabulous.
1: When you look at Buildings in cities now, and the styles that they're built in—is there some continuous line of evolution from Frank Furness to buildings today, or was his style there and cut off and switched to something else? Oh, it
0: switched, but it, but it, the genes of it are there. That when you when you see architects, uh, and in Philadelphia, we we talk about the Philadelphia School. We talk about Louis Kahn. Uh, and the Richards Medical Research Laboratories at Penn, and the various buildings he did around the world, the, the DACA Capital, and so on. When you look at, at Lou Kahn's buildings, they are buildings that reflected the ideas that Furness had, that Furness basically said, a building ought to look like what it is. It ought to be a machine for solving the problem. Kahn's buildings got that perfectly. Uh, and even though the ornament is gone. The detail is simplified. When you look at a furnace building and you look at a con building, you can see the relation. Uh, Mitchell Jergola, who did the wonderful United Fund building on the Parkway, clearly we're looking at furnace and understanding what he was about. The Venturi office, uh, Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown, again and again came back to furnace references. Bob wrote the introductions for my early Furnace books because he was so, you know, in love with what Furnace achieved, saw the power of the ideas. So these are all things that are very much part of the world uh, that continue. They continue in a different way. We work at a different scale. We work with different materials. Uh, but when you when you really lay out the genealogy, when you look at you know, Furnace and Will Price over here on the East Coast, and then George Howe, who does, who comes out of his office and does PSFS, the great modern skyscraper. I mean, that is a classic furnace building. Every function is represented and distinct.
1: The uh, PSFS building is a classic furnace building, because when you put them side by side, the one looks so stark and liney, and the but, others are but, more but ornate. But look
0: at, look at the street, and you've got the the shop front at the bottom and then the gigantic banking office above it and then the materials change and you go to the office tower, which is the speculative office tower. Each piece is defined in the same way that Furnace did the library. Every function is expressed and, re- and represented. Uh, the materials are part of telling you the story. This, the, how is, is a partner in the Furnace office? Uh, and saw Furness's designs and got the ideas uh, that then continued in the way that he used materials in PSFS, that Furness would, on a big square pier, uh, if he wanted you to go in one direction, he'd use black on this side and white on this side, uh, because he isn't talking about the pier as a uniform classical object. He's talking about it as a directional tool, and how gets that, how understands that. So uh, these ideas pass through, they change with new understandings of design, uh, but Furnace is at the core of the best work that's still being done.
1: You did uh, an entire book on the Pennsylvania Academy of
0: Fine Arts? I did, Uh, that came out last year. And uh, in that book, I call it First Modern, uh, and argue that, f- that the Academy is in fact truly the first modern building to work from logistics as the basis of the design, to incorporate the new materials of the industrial age, uh, to design a building that was flexible and adaptable, uh, and that still 140 years later is a superb art school. Uh, and uh, it was my sense that, you know, we. We all got sort of used to it, but nobody asked the question, why is it important? The answer is it's important because it, it unleashed the world of now. And Sullivan is in the office as that building is going on. And a lot of what Sullivan took from Furnace, uh, you see in Chicago uh, bits and pieces of the academy all over the place. So much fun.
1: Did architecture
0: critics ever warm up to Frank Furnace? They did. Um, they, they first of all did as someone in conflict, uh, you know, the romantic hero uh, rejecting uh, the normative world, which they all wanted to be uh, in the 60s. Uh, and then when we, when we did the big exhibit at the Art Museum in 71, 73 actually was the, was the exhibit, they began to see him in a much broader way because we introduced them, uh, the public, to his, the entire range of his work. Uh, and they saw him as more than just the class clown. Uh, and uh, now he is one of the icons of American architecture. Uh, when uh, they did a, sheets of great American buildings, the Academy is one of the four great American buildings that gets its own sheet, so uh, we've, we've had an effect. You said is this is your fourth book on Frank Furness? Yes, tragically. <laughs> But uh, I'm hoping it's the last. Um, Frank has led me uh, on a merry chase, but the fun of it has been that he's made me look and finally understand the architectural culture of Philadelphia. Uh, And uh, once that happened, I was able to see him uh, in a new way.
1: Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with George Thomas. He is the author of this book, Frank Furness, Architecture in the Age of the Great Machines. Thank you very much.
0: My pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.